Welcome to episode number 31 of the Video Game History Hour, presented by the Video Game History Foundation. Every episode, we'll be bringing in an expert guest, someone who's done their research or lived through it and has an interesting story from video game history to tell. My name is Kelsey Liu, and I'm the co-director of the Video Game History Foundation, and I'm here, as always, with Frank Cifaldi, the founder and co-director of the Video Game History Foundation. And today we're welcoming back Alex Smith, uh, author of They Create Worlds in basically all of its iterations, the the book, the podcast, the blog. Um, today we're talking about Space War, which I understand is the first video game ever made, right? <laughs> Alex, uh, welcome back to the Video Game History Hour. Uh, thanks. It's great to be back. Am, am I your first repeat? I, I don't think I've you seen are, you. You are. Second. Mm-hmm. Second repeat. Yeah. And you just barely missed it. Our first repeat was last episode, so... Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Which you couldn't know because it's not published yet as far as there you go. Well, either way, even if I wasn't asked back first, it's a pleasure to be back. (laughs) You're the one we considered asking back like almost every week starting at, I don't know, episode like 16 or something like that. We're like, we don't know who to ask. Let's just get Alex on again. (laughs) So, um, Alex, I don't know. Just start us off. Tell us about Space War. Absolutely. So for those that don't know, uh, Space War is a very, very early real-time computer game. It's not quite the first, something we can get into if you want, but is not strictly necessary. But it's the the first game that really spread beyond the confines of its original location and influenced some of the first generation of commercial video game creators, most notably Nolan Bushnell, who founded Atari. It's uh, in its original incarnation because it was modified everywhere it went. But in its original basic incarnation, it's a game in which you have two spaceships out in open space orbiting a sun, which exerts uh, a gravitational force. And these two ships are maneuvering around the screen, uh, trying to shoot each other. One hit kills, and whoever kills their opponent uh, the most uh, in the time frame that they decide to run it in, wins the match. Uh, It was created for a system called the PDP-1 by the uh, mini computer company Digital Equipment Corporation. Uh, Today, some people incorrectly call the PDP-1 a mini computer, though it really (laughs) predated the, the whole mini computer concept, but it was still an incredibly cheap computer for its time. It was a $120,000 computer at a time when mainframes still usually set you back at least a million, if not two or three million. It was merely the size of two refrigerators. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So is it more accurate to just call it a cheap mainframe? Like, is, is that the distinction? I guess it's it's more not a mini computer because it was created before that concept kind of solidified. So it's it's somewhat legitimate to call it a mini computer today, just in comparison to what it was up against. So and well, I th- I think you know for for the sake of listeners who you know have maybe no concept of computer history, only video game history. Sure, um, we're talking uh, early '60s here, right? Like literally '60s, 60, '61, something like that. <laughs> exactly. And what 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 is a computer right now? What are they actually for? <laughs> sure. So a computer in this period of time is not generally something that would be very exciting to play a game on. Most of them are these huge machines that can take up 
uh, anywhere from the size of a an entire small room to the biggest machines even taking up as much as half an acre of space. We're talking about really large machines, and it's just banks upon banks upon banks of circuit boards and tape decks and blinking lights. And most computing in this time is done through a process known as batch processing, which you take a bunch Flash of- Flash processing. Yeah, like Sonic. <laughs> Ah, blast processing. (laughs) A a little bit different than uh, what Sega may or may not have done. But uh, in batch processing, what you did is you had a stack of index cards or a long roll of paper or magnetic tape, and this would have data on it sequentially. And you would have a giant hopper or a giant reel, and you would feed all of this information in sequentially all at once. The computer would take some time, some lights would blink, so you would hopefully think it's doing something. And after a period of time, it would spit a result out at the end, and it would either do what the program was meant to do, or it would say, there's an error in your program and we can't do anything. (laughs) And that was computing. It was not interactive in any way in most places. And... The Digital Equipment Corporation and its PDP-1 computer came out of MIT, actually. The founders of DEC, Ken Olson and Harlan Anderson, were working on a MIT-US government collaboration uh, called Whirlwind, which was the very first real-time computer, which when we're talking real-time, what we're talking about is something where you make an input, like, say, press a key, and nearly instantaneously, imperceptible to, to the human brain, you get a result. You hit a letter A, and a letter A appears on the screen. And I know what I'm saying doesn't sound like rocket science, but in 1951, it was literally rocket science <laughs> because they were creating these computers to serve as command and control systems uh, to identify, detect, and interdict Soviet missiles. That's the whole point of the Whirlwind Project at this time. Well, and I do want to back up one sec because you mentioned a display there, and that's not something that's standard on all computers at this point, right? Exactly. That's that's an excellent point to bring up, Kelsey. The Whirlwind did have a display, but most computers at this time didn't have what we would call a display. It may have a paper readout of some kind, perhaps a teletype, but it wouldn't have a monitor. It wouldn't have a screen, which meant computing was very different than as we did it today because it was put a bunch of cards in a hopper and wait and get the results on a printout of some kind. No keyboards, no screens, certainly no mice way in the future. So it's basically just a really elaborate calculator, essentially, right? Exactly, in in a lot of ways. So Whirlwind was a paradigm shift. This idea of creating a command and control system where you interact with real in real time, and you even interact with a display with with a CRT, what we would call a monitor today. So that was the genesis of DEC. Then what Ken Olson's kind of contribution was is he was like, okay, Whirlwind is this big command and control system. It's meant to be used by lots and lots of people. And it's just meant to be controlling a large system. It's not really what we would consider personal computer use today. But Ken Olson's breakthrough was, what if we took this idea of real-time computing that we have here? What if we use some of these fancy new technologies like transistors to shrink it down even more? Because Whirlwind was huge. 
and the Sage systems that were built as the command and control systems out of the Whirlwind project. Those were the half acre computers I was talking about before. Let's make something smaller and more interactive. So maybe a scientist or an engineer in a laboratory setting can sit down at this computer and do some of their personal scientific or engineering calculations on a computer that's real time like Whirlwind. We're still not talking personal in the sense of one computer per person, because like I said, it's still $120,000 computer in 1961 money. So that's a significant outlay, but at least you can have something a little smaller and a little more intimate that a person can run their own experiments on. And that's what led to a prototype computer at Lincoln Labs called the TX0 or TIXO, as it was commonly called, TX-0. And the TIXO served as the prototype for the PDP-1. So why we have to go into all of this deck and computer history to get to the point where we actually have this influential game Space War is that without this paradigm shift that Digital Equipment Corporation led towards the idea of one-on-one -on -one computer use in a real-time environment, you couldn't have a computer game like this. The early game experiments, they were... They were chess programs, they were tic-tac-toe programs, they were NIM programs, where you do an input, you wait a while for the computer to think, and then the computer spits out its move on a piece of paper, and then you make another input, and it's all turn-based. Okay, but, but is that a video game? Exactly. Is that a video <laughs> game? And really, that's that's a whole other episode topic. <laughs> uh, and in a lot of ways, you could argue, no, that's not a video game. Yeah, There ain't Absolutely. no video here. <laughs> and... Now we have an environment where we can create something that you can play in real time, real time interaction, and you're actually playing it on a screen. You're not just seeing the uh, the computer spit out Knight to Queen's Rook four on on a piece of paper. If right. That's even a real chess move. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> For some reason, it surprises me to hear that you don't know how to play. Like, I just interpret you as a chess player. I don't know why. Um, so my, my my perception has been blown. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> okay. So, um, so, so the PDP-1 exists as a sort of personal computer. And mm -hmm. um, sort of to bring us into our story today... Um, how how and why does the PDP-1 end up at MIT? Absolutely. So as I alluded to in the whole whirlwind deck story, uh, the founders of Digital Equipment Corporation that made the PDP-1, they were MIT alums. They had been students there, graduate students. They'd been working in Lincoln Labs. And then they decided to go out and own on their own and found their own company, Digital Equipment Corporation, in nearby Maynard, Massachusetts. So there was this line, this connection between DEC and MIT from the very beginning of the company. And in some ways, DEC was almost like an informal branch campus of MIT, just because they hired a lot of MIT alums because there were people they knew and then people knew people. And you had a lot of students doing internships. You had lots of back and forth traffic. Uh, graduate students in MIT would just come out to hang out at uh, at Digital Equipment Corporation and, and see what was going on. And uh, Ken Olson was very fond of his alma mater, and he would donate machines to MIT as well. So that prototype I mentioned, the TIXO, which was uh, kind of the beginning of, of the journey of the PDP-1, they actually donated that to MIT, uh, to, to their uh, research laboratory for electronics. And then 
a couple of years later, when the PDP-1 was ready to go, they donated one of the very first PDP-1 computers to the Research Laboratory for Electronics as well. So those DEC computers were embedded at MIT from almost the very beginning of their existence. And so you have a group of people at MIT who kind of know that this PDP is coming ahead of time, right? And maybe yes. they want to do something for it. I mean, what <laughs> this is going to sound like a silly question, but like, what is the point of Space War? Because it's not a commercial game. <laughs> exactly. Well, there there is no point, which is entirely the point. So there was a community at MIT that was very into electronics, was very into technology, and was very into just fooling around with this stuff for the fun of it. Many of them were associated with a group known as the Tech Model Railroad Club, which ran a gigantic railroad on campus. It was just a, a student club, like, like any other club. And they had a giant railroad set up, and there was a small subset of this railroad club that was responsible for maintaining all of the electric and electronic components of this giant railroad. It was uh, a rat's nest of wires and switches and relays that made the whole thing work. And they kind of created their own culture, which uh, honestly is, is what today we know as hacker culture. Now, in the 1980s, the term hacker took on a kind of dark connotation. A hacker is someone who breaks in and, and does bad things. But in the early days, uh, the concept of hacker was just you did something cool because you could. Within the Tech Model Railroad cl Club, if you did something cool just for the heck of it, that thing was called a hack. And so because you created a hack, you were a hacker. Uh, other words that came out of this, uh, they were the people that invented the concept of a tool as somebody who's more concerned with following the rules and being goody two-shoes than having fun. And uh, the term cruft. Uh, for garbage came out mm -hmm. of uh, this hacker culture and the term kludge for something you just throw together. All of these are actually terms that came out of MIT, the Tech Model Railroad Club, and and the so-called hacker culture. And I, I, I do spread. appreciate that the uh, that the 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 term like life hack was like trying to reclaim the word hack to be a uh -huh. positive thing. That, that, <laughs> you know. Absolutely. I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> And so this group was already on campus, and they didn't necessarily have access to computers at this point, though. The other big thing about MIT that was really visionary, and a person that does not get enough credit, really, for starting this whole mess, is uh, a professor by the name of Jack Dennis, uh, who's actually still alive. He's in his 90s now. And... He had been at Lincoln Lab. The thing about Whirlwind, uh, we have to go back here again, I know. But <laughs> the thing about Whirlwind that was truly revolutionary is because you could interact with it directly, there didn't have to be quite the same limits to access. When you have a batch processing computer that can only do things uh, sequentially and it takes a lot of time, you have to parcel out every bit of that time because you probably have... 50 people that want to run a program and you have time to do, let's say, 10 programs. I'm, the, the numbers are made up, but the, the problem is real. You can't let everybody use the computer. So you have to prioritize projects that have the most value. You have to prioritize serious academic work over people just wanting to mess around with things. And you can only get so much done. 
real-time computing gets rid of some of that barrier. Obviously, you still have time constraints, but you can allow people to get directly on that computer and just play around with it if there's a time when no work is going on. And as it just so happens, computers back in this day were, because they were super expensive and super difficult and uh, were most prone to have a failure, just as electronics are today, during uh, turning them off and on, booting, booting up and shutting down, they left these computers on at all hours. There was nobody doing scientific work on a real-time computer at 10 o'clock at night, probably, but the computer was still on. It had to be. So in a place like Whirlwind, where it was real-time, students, graduate students working on the project could come in after hours and just play around with it. And Jack Dennis was one of these students, uh, graduate students, that had that opportunity at Whirlwind. So when the Research Laboratory Electronics, uh, the RLE, which I'll call it henceforth, uh, because that's a mouthful, when the RLE got the Tixo computer, Jack Dennis was like, it was really rewarding for me and I think valuable for the project that a student like me was able to fool around with Whirlwind after hours. I want the RLE to be an environment where current students can come in and fool around with this computer when it's not doing other work. And since it wasn't the main mainframe at MIT, it, it wasn't being used all the time. And it just so happened that Jack Dennis, who was an MIT alum, had been a member of the Tech Model Railroad Club himself as a student. So he was basically like, I know a group of nerds that would really dig getting involved with a computer. Because of my whirlwind experience, I want them to have the same experience. I'm going to go to them and say, hey, we've got this computer. Why don't, why don't you play around with it? And that's what they did. And so on the Tixo, the, the precursor to the PDP-1, they they would just come in uh, late at night on the weekends when real work wasn't happening, and they would just make whatever seemed fun. We're not talking games at this point, but uh, they made uh, an Arabic to Roman numeral number converter just because why not? They made a calculator, which sounds like it's useful and, until you realize that you're using uh, a multi-hundreds of thousands of dollar machine to do addition and subtraction, when even back then you had smaller, cheaper machines that could do the same thing. Um, yeah, machines that were specifically <laughs> built for that purpose as opposed to, yeah. Exactly. And uh, they did some stuff with audio. There was a music program that was made. So they're just, they're just playing. They're just having fun. And then this PDP-1 is coming, and the PDP-1 is more capable. It has more memory, and it has even a better display. Uh, the display on the PDP-1 and, and on the Tixo is what's called a point-plotting display. It's like a vector monitor uh, that you might remember from Tempest and Battlezone and, and those types of, of 80s arcade games, except the, the one kind of technical difference, says the completely non-technical person, uh, is that with a vector monitor, you start at a point on the screen and you're given a vector and then it draws a line in that direction until you deflect the beam in another direction and it draws lines. A point pot plotting display draws each point individually. So it's not it's not drawing lines, it's drawing points. But otherwise, it's very similar. It's not a raster scan display like your television. It's essentially a vector display. And, and in practical terms, you know, having actually uh, used a PDP-1 uh, myself, um, 
what that tends to mean is is you get this pretty distinct um ghosting mm-hmm. uh, of moving objects that I don't think uh I've seen on any other displays uh where I mean for example if you're if you're moving around the the ship in space war you know you're it's um it's, it's very asteroids like you kind of uh tilt and thrust um and and as you're thrusting uh, there is this sort of like comet trail that naturally happens behind you as a result of of the the display, um, and it's it's a really interesting look because it you, you see it sort of fading out toward the back and and getting stronger as you get to your ship. It's it's not something that that d- displays can even now do because it's just not how they're they're made. You can you can fake it digitally, but it's it's a very distinct look and it's it's pretty interesting. Absolutely. So with this brand new shiny computer came this real desire to do brand new shiny hacks. And at this point, uh, our first protagonists are actually not part of the Tech Model Railroad Club, though they'll come into play later. Though without that hacker culture already existing, Space War would have never happened. And this is something that actually confuses uh, a lot of people. I, I recently did a, a blog post. Uh, you mentioned my book, and I've been doing a series of annotated blog posts where I kind of go more in depth on some of the material that I, I covered in my book. Um, and I recently did a blog post kind of exploring the timeline of Space War in a little more depth just because there is a lot of confusion in the sources. Because a lot of sources assume that there was this Tech Model Railroad Club, and then there were these MIT students, and then therefore MIT students from the Tech Model Railroad Club created Space War. And that's actually not true, because the the principal instigators of Space War, even though some of these students did help out, were three college dropouts, quite frankly. Uh, that's being a little harsh, because it's not <laughs> like they <laughs> they uh, tuned in, turned on, dropped out. They didn't they got that MIT. For- <laughs> exactly. Or, and, I mean, there's yeah, a couple, M- couple of places they went to, right? Yeah, M- MIT and Dartmouth. It's it's not like they just dropped out. There were reasons that they didn't end up graduating, and they ended up all having long, successful careers in tech. Thank you. I feel better for having done this myself now. <laughs> Are you an Absolutely. MIT dropout, Frank? <laughs> no, I'm a, I'm a community college of Southern Nevada dropout. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but it was not actually the students. The the three initial movers were these these people that were not students. And uh, these were three friends uh, by the name of Martin Greats, Wayne Wheatonen, and uh, the most famous of them, uh, Steve Russell. And I just want to stop there before I go further on the story. Personal rant. I just want to say for the record that Steve Russell was not an MIT student when he created Space War. He was <laughs> never an MIT student at any point in his life because every single space war article, every single space war documentary, every single space war, everything except my book says uh, (laughs) that Steve Russell was an MIT student. Uh, I I said, like, yeah. like, oh God. And, and I, I said, in, I said in my, my blog post, I, you know, I, I made the joke that I, I fully expect at this point, uh, when he dies, his, his tombstone's going to say, here lies Steve Russell, famous MIT student. Uh, it's, it's that pervasive. And, uh, he, he had actually gone to Dartmouth and he didn't graduate from Dartmouth. He did all of the coursework except a senior thesis. There's a, there was a required senior thesis at Dartmouth. He didn't do it. And so he never got a degree. At that point, he came to MIT as an employee 
of the new artificial intelligence laboratory uh, founded by John McCarthy, the, mm. literally the founder of the the AI discipline. He he's the one that coined the term artificial intelligence as a field of research. So he came to the AI lab as an employee, worked there for a couple of years, did join the Tech Model Railroad Club. I don't know how that works. It was a student club, but I guess they probably didn't care. They were like, okay. Did you anyone like check? You know, I mean, you <laughs> might have just been able to walk in and it's going to be like, show me your papers. Are you really a student here? Exactly. I mean, he loved <laughs> trains. He loved trains going all the way back to his childhood. So he joined the Tech Model Railroad Club. His name is on the rolls. We know he was there, but he wasn't a student. <laughs> um, he did that for a couple of years and then he left uh, for Harvard. Uh, he was not actually at MIT during the creation of Space War. He created it there because he still hung out. Again, nobody cared. It's like, oh, there's that Russell guy again. Um, but uh, he was a Harvard employee. And when he went to Harvard, he met a couple of MIT, uh, not really dropouts, but non-completers, we'll call them, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that was Wayne Wheaton and Martin Gretz, who were good friends. They were uh, all about the same age. And uh, Wayne and Martin had met at MIT. They'd been friends for years. And Wayne had gotten into computers first uh, in in school. And then Martin was a chemistry major who uh, didn't have much luck in chemistry. So then Wayne was able to pull him into computers. Uh, he started as an operator at Harvard, uh, which is just a fancy way of saying you fed stuff into the machine. I mean, it wasn't really a, a savvy computer job, but then he took it upon himself to learn some programming languages and, and became a programmer in his own right. So these three are at Harvard. Then Gretz gets dismissed from uh, the Litauer lab at, at Harvard, where they're all working. He knows Jack Dennis because... Jack Dennis and Martin Gretz were also both big sci-fi people. And when Martin Gretz was at uh, at MIT, Jack Dennis was running a science fiction club, a science fiction book club on campus. So that's the connection there. Gretz gets a job working for Dennis at MIT. He's introduced to the Tixo, and he learns in the summer of 1961 that this PDP-1 computer is going to come to MIT. And so he gets his buddies, Wayne and Stephen, together, and they have a brainstorming session sometime in the summer of 1961. At this point, it's impossible to pinpoint when. It's not like they kept minutes of their meeting or anything like that. But we do know it was summer because uh, Wayne was called up to uh, active military service in the fall. And so it couldn't have been the fall because he was gone. And this was something you brought up in your article about how, I mean, there was really no sense of when this meeting was until you had that specific recollection, right? Exactly. I mean, they'd always said it was the summer. I mean, they always, but there was no like, well, documentary evidence like, okay, you say it was summer, but prove it. I mean, memory is so tricky. Even when but, you have like six or seven people like this, I mean, it's just... <laughs> Yeah. Especially when you're talking about this many years ago, uh, how could you possibly remember even down to the month, <laughs> let alone it, the day? It, exactly. I mean, you get you get six people together and you probably get 10 stories. I mean, it, it gets worse the more people you throw into it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but then I, I actually tracked down uh, Wayne. I'm pretty sure I was the first person to ever do an interview with him. Uh, I mean, Martin Gretz had done an article on the history of space war back in the eighties. And he talked to everybody for that, but they weren't 
quoted in his article. He just went to them on on background. So I I don't think anyone had talked to Wayne uh, before that. And so I I even asked. I knew I probably wouldn't get a real answer. I was like, I know it was 50 years ago and blah, blah, blah. But do you have any way of pinpointing the date? And he was like, well, I got my orders on August 10th and it had to be before that. And it's like, well, there you go. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he still couldn't pinpoint an exact date, but he knew he still had record of of when he couldn't have done it anymore. And so we got a, a nice range. So in the summer of, of 1961, they they have a meeting at at what they uh, facetiously called the Hingham Institute, because Wayne and Martin, they lived together. They were roommates uh, in a tenement building on Hingham Street in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And MIT is the Institute. That's its nickname. So they decided that they were the Hingham Institute. They they could be a fancy Cambridge think tank, too, in their little rundown tenement. <laughs> so they convened the Hingham Institute, the three of them, and they were like, this computer's coming. We got to do something with it. And they decided that if they were really going to do a demo. It had to be something that pushed the computer to its limits. It had to use every function. It had to use every call. It had to use every last pro- uh, processing cycle and every last speck of memory that they possibly could. And so they're just it, doing this like for fun. Basically. Just for fun. Yeah. Cool. Just it's exactly. <laughs> no, it's good to bring up again. Hey, there's this cool new computer. We should we should do something with it because we can. Uh, you know, they're just excited nerds geeking out, quite frankly. Well, that, I, mean, I mean, I'm just kind of wondering what the common thread is between the three of them. Is it are they, you know, are they just purely hobbyist? Are they are they trying to prove something with this club? Do you do you have any sense of that? I think I, as far as I know, I don't think they they really had anything in particular they wanted to prove. I think they were just uh, they were friends that were all three deeply into computers and all three worked with computers uh, for a living, and just had fun mm. fooling around with with computers. Uh, I, I really think there's there's not too much more to it than that. And they're like, okay, so yeah, we got to have something that's real time. We have to have something that the user's directly controlling rather than just watching because, you know, f- flying toasters is fun the first time you see it, but it, it gets old after the, the 50th time you see it. It's not really a good demo just to have something like visually drawing on the screen for long-term engagement. Uh, We want the person controlling something. They'll be more into it if there's some kind of challenge. And and then Wayne Wheatman, who's kind of the the unsung hero of all this in a way, just because since he did leave for military service that fall, he was not involved in the actual creation of the game. So none of the people that were MIT people that worked on the game ever met Wayne. They had no idea who Wayne was. They knew Steve. They knew Martin. They didn't know Wayne. Because of that, he kind of faded into the background a bit. But Wayne is the one that said, it should be a game. It should be a competition. Let's have people racing or fighting or doing something that just fully engages them. And all three of them were science fiction fans. Uh, They had recently been reading their way through the books of E.E. Smith, who was really one of the first writers of what we would call space opera. It was kind of Star Wars before Star Wars kind of stuff. It was not necessarily all hard science fiction, but it was all about melodramatic plots and dastardly villains and... uh, 
super weapons and coming out up with a solution to defeat the big bad at the last second and all of this stuff that we would associate with something like Star Wars today. And they had recently been reading through these uh, books of his. And so the idea of space war just sprang right out of that meeting. Well, let's have ships fighting in space, just like uh, in these Lindsman and Skylark novels that that E.E. E. Smith writes. And so that's how the three of them kind of came up with the idea of space war. Uh, surely there's some Star Trek in here, too, though. <laughs> well, not not yet, because, okay. of course, uh, this is we're talking 1961. And uh, oh, Star you're Trek, right. Yeah, right. Star- I had my decades mixed up. Wow. <laughs> no, no, you're quite all right. You're you're quite all right. Uh, so yeah, Star Trek uh, literally didn't exist yet. Yeah. Um, it it was all these kind of th- you know I mean there was Buck Rogers influence certainly you know some of the the serials the older serials the same ones that that influenced Star Wars were out there. Well, in, in uh, the real world, you're getting into space race territory now too, right? I don't know you exactly when the first are. man in orbit was, but it's around that time, right? Oh yeah, no, you you absolutely are, and there's there's certainly I I can't imagine that wasn't some kind of influence, uh, and certainly MIT ended up being very involved in the space race. I mean, the the computer much later that that uh, ran the Apollo mission was was an MIT built computer. That that's probably also percolating in their heads. They they never emphasize that aspect of it as much when they talk about it, but I'm sure that was also on their minds because, as you said, the space race was in full swing by that point. So they have the idea, but now the problem is somebody has to go and do it. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, ideas are easy. <laughs> uh Finished, finished products are hard. Well, especially in <laughs> software development, folks. If, you, if you've ever thought, I have a great idea for a video game, that is not a useful thing to anyone. Like, they don't people, hire ideas, guys? They don't hire studios? idea guys. No, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, you actually have to do the work. <laughs> exactly. Well, Wayne couldn't do the work. Uh, not only did he have no real connection to MIT anymore, more despite being a, an alum, but he's getting called up to active service because he's a reservist and the Berlin Wall crisis is happening right at this time. So uh, the U.S. bulks up its troop levels in Europe and then it calls up reserve units to fill those slots domestically. Uh, and so Wayne's gone. Uh, Martin could maybe theoretically do it. But by the time they've come up with this idea, by the the fall of 1961, his work for Jack Dennis is done, and he's in a completely different MIT department in a completely different building. So he's still an MIT employee, but he doesn't have the same level of connection with the RLE that he had had previously. So that leaves Steve Russell who is, I guess, not known as Slug for nothing, though uh, he <laughs> that, that was his nickname, Slug. And, and it's been tempting to, to use the Space War story as saying, well, it's obvious why he was named that, though. That's that's not necessarily true. The, the way Steve himself tells it is uh, when I was a freshman in high school, people started calling me Slug and I have no idea why. <laughs> and it just it just kind of stuck. But he he was not at MIT regularly anymore. He was still at Harvard. He came by to hang out, but he wasn't a regular employee there. So he was around, but he wasn't necessarily enthusiastic about actually 
putting in the grunt work himself to make this work. But he starts talking it up. He's like, oh, yeah, me and my buddies, we came up with this uh, idea for a demo. And it's called, I don't know if they really called it Space War yet, but we'll say he did. And it's called Space War and it's spaceships fighting and it's really cool. I think it would be great if somebody did this on this PDP one, and then wait—is the, this the first idea guy? In yeah, he's video the first game? ideas guy, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and some of the people uh, in the Tech Model Railroad Club and at the AI lab next door uh, were like, "You're right, Steve, or you're right, Slug. That is a really great idea. You should do that." <laughs> and he's like, "No, no, 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 no. I don't want to. I wouldn't know where to begin. I've never used this computer. I." The math is hard. I mean, I'm just, this just this is something you guys should do. And they're like, no, nah, no, nah, Steve, this is your idea. Yeah, you know, go right ahead. Go, go. <laughs> we, we'd love for you to do this. And, and so that went back and forth for a bit. Uh, there's also the matter that the display wasn't even there yet, uh, mm. which was a problem. Uh, the computer arrived first. The display was an optional component. Not every PDP-1 shipped with the display. And so they got the computer first. And that was uh, there for a couple of months before they got the display. So they had a lot of time to argue this back and forth where nobody could do any work. So it was kind of a moot point. And um, this uh, display thing, I actually do want to pause on this real quick, just because I thought your story of finding out this part of the story uh, was so interesting. Because pretty much everyone you talked to remembered it them as uh, being there at the same time, right? Exactly. So I, I should bring up, uh, this is a good place to bring it up, that... Uh, when I'm not doing my day job or writing books or doing podcasts, uh, I'm actually part of a Smithsonian initiative called the Video Game Pioneers Archive. And uh, this uh, organization uh, is out of the Limelson Center of the uh, Museum for American History. And uh, Chris Weaver, who was the founder of Bethesda Softworks, uh, but is really more of an academic than he is uh, a business mogul. Uh, he's an MIT professor himself now, and he is the head of this project for the Smithsonian. And he tapped me uh, because of some of the work I was doing to be his, his head researcher. So what we're doing is oral history interviews with some of the foundational figures within uh Computer games specifically, that's the focus of this project. It's not really getting into coin-op, and it's only a little bit getting into console stuff. But the idea is to do really in-depth oral histories. Uh, many of our oral histories have, have run for, for six hours or more. And get some of these stories of these early pioneers on the record. Some of them have been interviewed before, even by other oral history projects, but not all of them. And even when they have been interviewed before by oral history projects, not necessarily for six hours. So this is this is something I'm very involved in. And, and a project that we were able to do is actually get all the living creators of Space War, which is all of them but one, actually, only one person uh, involved uh, in the creation had had sadly passed away before this this event. All eight of the living people involved with this together in a room. Uh, and we did oral history interviews with them separately. Uh, not our typical six hour because none of them went on to do anything in the video game industry after. So there was not as much to talk about. But we did interviews of about two, three hours each with all of them and then had a big panel event that was open to the public. Uh, back when the Smithsonian was open to the public. 
<laughs> and you're missing uh, a really cool part of the story, which is that this is the first time all of these people had been in a room together, which kind of blew my mind. Literally the first time, because as I said before, Wayne wasn't part of the whole MIT side of things. So like the MIT people had all been in the same place before, presumably at the same time, but not with Wayne. So this was literally the first time all of these people had ever been together. And it was the first time many of these people had seen each other in like 40 years. And uh, we did a we did a big panel event. Uh, Jack Dennis was also there. He wasn't one of our oral history uh, people, but ninety plus year old Jack Dennis made the trip down to D.C. and and was in the audience and and talked for a couple of minutes. We invited a lot of industry people uh, to show up as well. Uh, Ed Freeze was there. Warren Robinette was there. Uh, David Crane was there. In fact, it's it's great. I hope they put video up on this someday because it was really fun seeing David Crane come up to the microphone during the question and answer section and geek out over space war. It's it's so <laughs> it's it's so fun to see people in the industry geeking out over some of the of the people that even predated them in the industry. So that was that was a really fun moment. I I also have a, a brief David Crane Smithsonian story <laughs> that I enjoy, which is um I was at the opening of the Smithsonian's uh, Art of Video Games exhibit. Um, as was David Crane. Um, and uh, one of the games exhibited at the Smithsonian American Art Museum was David Crane's Pitfall. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I when I said hi to, to David, I was like, David, your your art is in the Smithsonian. And his reply was, well, it's not really art. It's actually engineering. that sounds about right (laughs) well that's a we'll close the book on that case video games are not art they are engineering you heard it from david crane (laughs) engineering is not an art it's something else it's a science (laughs) exactly um okay so where were we so uh so slug yeah so they have this idea for for making this game and slug doesn't want to do it oh no so no we we were i i do remember where we were getting we were getting to the monitor ah (laughs) yes i i i I, you know we've got a a real shaggy dog story here but we're getting there so we had the opportunity to get all of these guys in a room and it was fascinating to see how kind of their recollections influenced each other's recollections this is this is why we interviewed them in isolation first because they start hearing other people's (laughs) stories and they're like oh maybe they have the right of it and then their stories actually start to change it was interesting to see and it was just in small ways it was small details it was interesting to see how the story changed a little bit from when we interviewed them individually to when we did the panel because the the panel was after we had interviewed most of them but yeah almost all of them said that because we asked them because I knew this already. I had court records, depositions that showed when particular parts of this computer were installed because the person at MIT that was responsible for maintaining the computer, John McKenzie, brought the logbook with him to the deposition. So even though the logbook, I don't have scans of the logbook itself, they were reading from the logbook. And so we know from the logs exactly when the monitor was installed. It was installed in December, which was Wait, a couple so of months. Wait, so were you like testing them? 
You're like, when was when was the monitor installed? <laughs> no, or, or oral history is part deposition itself. I mean, you're not trying to get a perjury trap going, but you, you're still interested to see if if their memory lines up with the record. And you don't tell them what the record says first, because if you do that, then they'll change their story because you tell them what the record says and they don't want to contradict the record. So, yeah, we would we would ask them, was the display installed? You know, did the display arrive at the same time? And almost all of them said, yes, it did. Uh, except for Martin, who also in his article in the 1980s said it arrived at different times. He was the one guy, I guess, paying attention because after 50 years, <laughs> well, after 50 years, what's two months? Right. Right. It's not an important detail <laughs> in your personal memories of a thing that you worked on for fun 40 years ago. Exactly. But as a historian, it's important to setting up the timeline because obviously Steve Russell isn't starting to make spaceships appear on a screen if there's no screen. But uh, the all of them thought that they arrived at the same time, but uh, they actually arrived a little later. So they did have a period of time where they could just argue back and forth. Do it. No, do it. No. <laughs> and See, Steve Russell should have remembered this because it would have absolved him of some of the... Exactly. You know, being slow about it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I couldn't have done it. There's no display. <laughs> and so finally he's like, okay, well, you know, I would do it, but I need sine cosine routines, and that's trigonometry, and trigonometry is hard and meh. And so then Alan Kotok, one of the Tech Model Railroad Club guys, one of the OG hackers, uh, gets fed up with this. As I said, people are going back and forth between deck headquarters and MIT all the time. He goes to MIT. He finds somewhere some sine-cosine routines for the PDP-1, slaps those down in front of Steve, and is like, here's your routines. Now go do it. And Steve finally had to admit he was out of excuses. I mean, he, he did want to see this done, too. I think he was just in part overwhelmed by what some of the work would involve. Because it is just for fun. And it's not even a place where he works because he is at Harvard now. Remember that, people. If you take nothing else away <laughs> from this episode of the Video Game History Hour, Steve Russell was not at MIT when he created Space War and he was never a student there. Anyway, so it's it's a big project. But when he's finally out of excuses and when he sees that people are helping him out, he's like, okay, fine, I'll I'll do it. So end of December, beginning of January, uh, 61 into 62, he finally starts programming this thing and he gets some spaceships up on the screen and he gets them able to shoot at each other. And, uh, you know, it's kind of neat, but it's still kind of basic. And, and this is where kind of the whole legend of, of the MIT hacker scene is born here, because basically what happens at this point is you get the first modding community, <laughs> you get a group of people who are like, okay, you've come up with a kind of interesting game, but this part of it's really lame. I could do a better job with this. I could make these physics more realistic. I could make these graphics better. I can add a complete hunger, thirst, and fatigue system to the game. <laughs> so so how does how does this work in practicality? Because you're on one system. So is it is it one well, I don't even know what the source code looks like physically, but like, is it one source code repository that people just kind of come in on their scheduled time and add to and then walk away? And then the next that, person's like, oh, that part's new. That seems to be the way of it. So we are fortunate. And I have to give a huge shout out here uh, to an Austrian gentleman by the name of Norbert Lonsteiner. 
we are fortunate that we actually have a lot of surviving source code from Space War, which is a minor miracle when you consider how hard it is to find source code from <laughs> from professional companies <laughs> from, from like five years, years ago. ago. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and I know, of course, that's a, that's a big part of, of your interest, which is why I bring that up. Yeah. Uh, we are fortunate that we have source code. So we have commented- Well, is that because it was stored physically? Yes. And that's a big mm-hmm. part of it. That's <laughs> a big part of it. it. We're talking paper tape. Yeah. Which uh, is- a little bit of a fragile medium, but not as fragile as as magnetic media or or digital only. Pa- paper is very hardy. <laughs> exactly. It's it's why when people ask, like, "Are you scanning all the magazines?" It's like, "Well, I'd love to have that all in mind, but uh, I I'm going to die someday, and, <laughs> and these are not. Let's let's figure out the yeah. Anyway, exactly. Yeah. So right, so it's on paper tape, and it does appear. That Steve Russell served as a gatekeeper. Oh, he was the he was the, he was the producer of this game, essentially. Yeah, <laughs> and people would work on these individual bits of things that they found interesting and thought could improve it, and then they would. It looks like, from what we can tell with the paper tapes we have, they would bring their code to to Steve, and then it would be integrated into kind of the the master paper tape. And some of it was in the form of direct integration. Some of it was in the form of of patches that were loaded on top of the core program. Mm. And uh, if you want to see some of that source code, um, the place to do it would be at uh, Norbert Lonsteiner's site, which is Mosferk, M-A-S-S-W-E-R-K dot A-T, because it's Austrian. And we and, will uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes, everybody. So don't 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 go scramble for a piece of paper. <laughs> Absolutely. And he has uh, a few different versions of the game up on there, which again was was very crucial. And all credit to him for this in constructing some of the timeline uh, that I did in my blog post, because some of these iterations are dated. And that gives us some specific information on when certain features were implemented within the game. So you had, first of all, he had stars on the screen. There there was some kind of background star field. Um, and there were two people that kind of took issue with this. The first was, was a guy by the name of Dan Edwards, who was working at the AI lab, which was literally right down the hall from the RLE. So there was a lot of back and forth between people working in those two departments. And Dan Edwards saw that there was this point of light kind of in the middle of the screen that was a star. And he was like, well, there's a star in the middle of the screen. It should do something. It shouldn't just be blinking there. There should be gravity. And I think that would make this game more interesting because now instead of just like aimlessly floating across the screen through space, you have a central point that is exerting an influence. A, you can't run into it because it'll burn you to a crisp, but B, it also affects the way you travel through that part of the screen. And you have some opportunity for some real strategy in how you circle that star to try to get at your opponent. It really makes it a completely different game. I mean, today, I mean, you can just look at Nolan Bushnell's computer space, which was his kind of take on Space War, which has no star, or 
play one of the uh, emulated versions of Space War on Norbert's site, and you can see how having that central point there really changes the dynamics and the strategy. Yeah, and yeah. I can, you know, I've, I've played the game um, mm-hmm. uh, on an actual PDP-1, um, and uh, the, the reason I did this, which I think is interesting, I don't know that this opportunity will happen again. We're still, you know, in pandemic days as we re- record this, but... Um, at least for a while, uh, Steve Russell was volunteering at the Computer History Museum, uh, which houses, I believe, the only functioning PDP-1 currently. And uh, he would volunteer on weekends and and demonstrate the PDP-1 on, on like a schedule. You know, every couple hours there'd be a PDP-1 demonstration. Uh, and part of that demonstration was Space War, which if I remember that day correctly, he didn't even talk about how he worked on it, which I thought was pretty funny. <laughs> um, it was just like, and it can run this thing. Um, but uh, yeah, having played the thing, um, the star is is crucial to this game. This game's nothing without that star, but it does add just a surprising amount of depth, um, You know, more so than a lot of even early arcade games that would come later because... Um, there, there is a, well, I mean, it, it's an analogy, but it's literal here. Like there, there is a flying too close to the sun aspect to it, right? Where it, like mm-hmm. you, you, there is some advantage to like blasting forward and trying to like get to your opponent quickly to shoot them, but you risk uh, literally flying too close to the sun and getting absorbed into it. And it's, uh, it's actually a pretty good game. I mean, we didn't really talk about the game too much yeah. in the beginning, but it's a pretty good. Uh, uh, fighting game is how I would describe oh, it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're just starting to get into this, but in case you're not super familiar with Space War, I mean, this is not a simple game. Mm, you would yeah. think it being, you know, this early on, that it would be a very simple, you know, kind of archaic game, but it, it has actual game design thought into it and physics and all kinds of, like, yeah. things that seem more sophisticated then yeah, then like you said, many, many, many games that came after it. Exactly. It's it's truly uh, amazing how fully formed this thing was at such an early date, which is why I think it spread so widely relative to computer users in the 1960s. I mean, we're not talking Space Invaders spread here, but it was the Space Invaders of its day amongst the very, very small subset of people that could actually access this thing. And so, yeah, he he wanted a star and Russell was like, that's a great idea. But, you know, I'm really not doing that because that's even more complicated math than this sine cosine nonsense. And that truly, honestly, is beyond me. (laughs) Uh, And so Dan Edwards was like, "Okay, fine, you know, I'll I'll do it then. Yeah, sure. And so he came up with that entire uh, thing, which was then integrated, uh, presumably by Steve Russell into this uh, this kind of master paper tape. Uh, Dan Edwards, in- incidentally, he didn't go on to a career in video games, but he did go on to a long and distinguished career in cybersecurity, and he is the person that came up with the term Trojan horse for a uh, malicious wow. program masquerading as another program. It's so funny because there's just, <laughs> there's just so few people working on computers at this time that it's like it's 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 likely that one of them coined a term or came up with a thing that we still use today Mm -hmm. like if you talk to literally any of them 
Absolutely. Yeah, all this slang is coming out of just this the creation of this one game, basically. Well, I mean, I guess that's later, but yeah, that's you know, later. The, but still, the Genesis it's, it's, is yeah, there. yeah. It's it's the you know it's the same group of people. <laughs> so, do you have a sense? I mean, maybe I'm getting too deep into the weeds here. No, but no. If you're um, if if you're working on something like the star system in Space War, do you know? Like, is he starting with a base version of Space War and patching that in before, and then like taking that patch out and handing it to Steve, or is he literally just working on like a star as its own program and then handing that to Steve to try to integrate? That's an excellent question. In the case of that specific thing, the star, I don't have an answer. Okay. In the case of some of the other uh, implementations, though, uh, it it was the latter, where they were creating a completely separate program that would then essentially be a subroutine, I guess, of the main Space War program once, once it was patched in. So uh, the other person, it's a great segue, actually, to the next person who thought the stars were boring was Peter Sampson, who decided that if we're going to have stars, they should be the real stars in the real placements and at their actual real brightness. This is what I'm talking about. Space War is not a simple game. I mean, you get a bunch of nerds in a room and this is what happens. So. You also get one of the best names out of this ever. Ex- exactly. Which is a expensive planetarium. Ex- expensive planetarium. So, uh, Steve, so Steve Russell then is a human GitHub. Uh, yes in 1962 yes Uh, that's great i love it so yeah so peter sampson creates expensive planetarium and this expensive uh naming scheme went back to the tixo days like that calculator i mentioned was called expensive desk calculator because they appreciated was that a joke yes exactly yeah they appreciated the irony that they were making a very complex and expensive thing do something that a much simpler and cheaper thing could also do. (laughs) And so they would call all of their programs expensive this, expensive that. There was also an expensive tape recorder, uh, which was uh, a digital to audio, uh, I I mean, analog, digital to analog converter, I believe, uh, that that was being created. They used expensive this, expensive that. And, And we know that in the case of expensive planetarium, that was a patch. So he went off and he wrote this whole star chart thing. Uh, which was, I forget what level it was accurate to, but it was accurate to a pretty fine level of detail to what the, the, the stars look like, uh, in the, in the sky from earth, not just in terms of their placement, as I said, but also in terms of their intensity because. So, uh, clarifying question real quick. So did the star in the middle of the stream, uh, in the middle of the screen come out of this, or is that the one inaccurate star inexpensive planetarium right so my understanding i mean nobody remembers the exact order of things necessarily anymore and we don't have a date for the star chart in the code we do for expensive planetarium uh but not not the star it i think the gravity came first the central star i think came first and the star chart came second because uh, so there it's were the one random inaccurate right sun or star. Well, in it might the it might of... be our sun. <laughs> exactly, you could okay. interpret it as our sun. So it's the center of what's going on, and then everything is around it. Uh, the reason I think that it is that it probably came first is the earliest account of Space Wars creation uh, public account was an article in Rolling Stone in 1971. 
And in that article, he, uh, Stuart Brand, uh, of whole earth catalog fame, who also did this article, talked to some of the creators. And in that article, the sequence is mentioned as being, uh, star first and then, uh, star field, the, the accurate star field. There were stars in the game before the accurate star field. They just weren't accurate. They were just random dots. Uh, which... I love this patch. This is so, <laughs> this is a ridiculous patch. <laughs> and exactly. And, uh, so since that's the, earliest accounting uh when memories were presumably the freshest even though they could have certainly still already gone bad in 10 years uh i i kind of assume that that was probably the order of things but yeah so uh to get back to you know what you were saying about how ridiculous it is yeah even the intensity of the glow so since it's a point plotting display Mm -hmm. you can make things uh different levels of brightness by just hammering that uh crt at a specific point, a certain number of times, the, you know, the longer you hold it at a point, the brighter that point will be compared to other points. So he programmed it in such a way that if it's a star that's brighter when seen from Earth, you would hit that point a little more so that that particular star is a little brighter and 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 so on and so forth. And it even scrolled the starfield even scrolled back and forth so you could get a larger frame the the screen uh the gameplay screen was was single screen it's not like your ship scrolled if you flew off one edge you uh you reappear on the other side don't you you that's my recollection yeah yeah uh you reappear on the other side similar to something like asteroids but uh the the star field in the background itself could actually scroll to to show more of the the sky so yeah and this was all just because peter samson was like well if we're going to have stars Let's have stars. And and I mean, that that's that's modding in a nutshell. I mean, if if we're going to have bread in the game, then you should have to eat it to <laughs> to not die. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's kind of well, it's, a, it's a like modding it, impulse. Right. It's 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 not that much different than just like, you know, I mean, you mentioned bread, but there is there are a lot of like, you know, if you go to like Nexus mods or whatever, there's a lot of mods that are just like, you know, the bread in Elder Scrolls isn't good looking. I replaced the texture. <laughs> And now there's better bread. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, it's this real communal project. It's this real hacker ethos. And Steve Russell kind of serves as the ringmaster. And everyone else is working on these other things that interest them. Uh, Martin does a hyperspace. Hyperspace was actually something that was planned to be in it from the beginning. It wasn't like some of these others where it's like, oh, well, the game should do this instead. Uh, I don't know why Russell wasn't doing it um, per se. I mean, it's I I don't think they necessarily remember themselves at this point, but maybe it it was Martin's way of feeling he was still involved in it because after all, he was part of the group that thought it up. So he was kind of working away and he was he was laboring away all on his own doing this, according to him. I mean, that's what he says. He wasn't hanging out in the RLE because he had his job in another part of MIT. So he was just completely off on his own doing this. And then, you know, they saved space in the code for additional mods. We can see that in the in the code that's preserved by uh, by Norbert Lonsteiner. There were places that they're like, uh, and here's a spot for more cool stuff. <laughs> so <laughs> and, and let's let's take a sec to make sure we understand what hyperspace is, because this is also mm-hmm. another like intentional gameplay game balancing element absolutely yeah no that's that's a good point we should define that so hyperspace as a concept they took from uh from ee smith because he had 
I've, I've never read his books, but I mean, I think he had similar ideas of galactic travel to, you know, what, what Star Wars did, for instance, with, with the idea of hyperspace. And in game terms, what it meant was you could, if you were in trouble, you could press a button or flip a switch and your ship would instantly move from where you are now to another random point on the screen. It was not targeted. You could presumably end up in a more dangerous spot than you actually left, uh, depending like on... Like on the sun. Yeah, like on the sun <laughs> or um, or still somehow in the path of some of the shooting going on. It was not uh, fail-safe. And uh, in its primary incarnation, you could only do it a limited number of times uh, per game. Uh, if you did it more than, I think, three times, your ship would blow up. It was just game over. But they, it was something to give you a little bit of last minute control over your fate if it looked like all hope was lost and to introduce a little element of randomness uh, to keep the game from becoming too predictable with its otherwise mostly accurate and, and predictable physics system. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, there is an accurate and predictable physics system, but it's also, let's be clear, like it's it's a pretty intense physics system with the the way that you uh, can orbit around the the sun that you can actually you know, like, like real astronauts, you can, you can essentially slingshot off of orbits, but mm-hmm. to gain speed and stuff like that. And, and um, you know, I, I, I think that's why, I mean, maybe I'm jumping the gun here a little bit, but I think that's why space war became, I mean, really the first e-sport, right. But it's, but mm-hmm. it became a, a competitive game uh, that, that uh stuck around quite a while and and created things like 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 tournaments around itself because uh, there was so much depth to this thing absolutely it's uh it's it definitely fits into the kind of you know easy to wrap your head around it but incredibly hard to to master yeah and uh of course another interesting element is that you know, we're we're not talking about a, a modern GUI interface here. We're we're barely even talking about a a primitive, uh, you know, Apple II or original IBM PC, you know, keyboard driven cursor interface. We're we're talking about a computer that is still largely operated through the use of toggle switches. Mm-hmm. That's the primary way you're doing things on this computer. There is a teletype for inputting programs. So you don't have to, like on an Altair computer, you don't have to flip switches up and down to do machine code. You can type in your code, but you're not really using a keyboard to control anything. On the computer itself, you're using toggle switches. So you've got this really intense game where you're having to move stuff around and turn stuff around. Of course, uh, it's uh, accurate space physics, so there's no inertia. You don't need a joystick to guide your ship around because basically your your ship is going to go com- keep moving in a direction until you exert a force in a different direction. So the movement is all based on rotating and firing thrusters. You don't need a continuous movement input to move your ship around. But still flipping toggle switches up and down to fire things and to turn your ship and to fire thrusters, that's, that's a lot. Well, when we're talking five right like if, mm-hmm. you, if you can't hyperspace right because yeah, it's, yeah. it's it's clockwise counterclockwise uh fire and thrust and hyperspace so exactly yeah it's a lot it's a lot of fingers <laughs> a lot of fingers and 
this computer isn't set up for continuous input like that. Even though it's real time, the creators aren't expecting you to do something that requires you to right. just <laughs> be constantly <laughs> flipping toggle switches. So you have two problems here. First of all, the switches aren't really rated for that. Yeah. <laughs> and so you're you're going to have breakage. But second of all, it's just not comfortable because you basically basically have to set your elbow on a table and while you're flicking toggle switches constantly. So there's a lot of sore elbows and there's a lot of equipment breakage. And so finally, another member of the uh, TMRC, Bob Saunders, who's hanging around all this, is, decides that he's going to do something about this. And so Space War also gives us the first dedicated video game controller specifically designed for the play of a game. Yeah. He just, he goes to, because Teamwork has all sorts of parts lying around because they have to keep this uh, railroad in repair. So he just goes to, to Teamwork because he's also a member. He just pulls random bits of this and bits of that out. And, and you know, they have wood and backlight and other materials because there's there's also scenery and car construction. I mean, they build all their own stuff. It's not like they're going down to the local uh, hobby shop and buying a pre-made building or a pre-made train. They build everything. <laughs> So he has industrial materials and he has electronics and he fashions a couple of control boxes that you can interface with with the PDP-1. And uh, we again, we know exactly when those were installed, because in that deposition, John McKenzie brought the logbook with him and the logbook actually has an entry for when those controls were first plugged in to that computer. It's It's actually interesting how many dates we can exactly pinpoint for something that is that old that nobody at the time thought was specifically important to preserve the timing of. It's not like they had someone, you know, an official chronicler that was writing down the dates for posterity. We just have a combination of log books and code annotations and, you know, the, the occasional call up to active duty orders to uh, kind of put everything <laughs> in the right place, you know? <laughs> and we, we basically just have this because computers are so freaking expensive, right? I mean, it's the only reason they're keeping logbooks in the first place is because if something breaks, you want to know who to blame. Exactly. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, it's and, an expensive piece of machinery. And you have to still dole out the time uh, so efficiently that you have to have signups. So um, I as I would hope that those logbooks are still at MIT because uh, one thing about academic institutions as opposed to, say, corporations is they do tend to be better about preserving their own records. So I, I've the only access I've ever had to the logbooks is the few entries that uh, were read into the record of the deposition. But if somebody really wanted to, they could probably come up with an even more detailed timeline of Space War by going to those logbooks and just seeing all the times that Steve Russell signed onto that computer, because since he wasn't an employee, most of the times that he signed on during that period were probably times he was working on Space War. It won't necessarily have a comment saying worked on Space War, but <laughs> you, you could probably figure out an even more detailed timeline if, if someone wanted to by by going and and reading through those logbooks. And that's just something we don't have for a lot of that old stuff. So is there a moment where Space War is done or do people just continue modding it until they don't? Yes, Space War <laughs> is never truly finished. There is a version 
that you might call the classic version, kind of the the last version that had all of the elements that that core group of MIT students put in themselves. Uh, and that there is a version of the of the source code that survives that's that's dated, I believe, September, though, even though it's September, all those features were actually in several months prior to that. But that's kind of like the core space war. And that's that space war 3.1. They actually they did version numbers even back then. Mm. So that that 3.1 version number is, to my understanding, their number for it, not a retroactive. This is how many versions we found. And so we're going to give them numbers like a, a modern uh, program control. Uh, so that's kind of the core classic version that people think of. It has the ships, it has the shooting, it has the gravity, the star field, the hyperspace, uh, scoring, uh, cause they did at one point so they could display it publicly and, and keep matches under control, put in a, a score tallying system. That's kind of the core version, but it continued to be modified at MIT after that. And it continued to be modified all over the country after that because it spread. Um, part of the reason that this happened is that the Digital Equipment Corporation was very much a hardware company. They did not care one whit about software. So by necessity, you had individual institutions coming up with their own compilers, their own debuggers, their own assemblers, their own just basic programs to make the computer work well. For, forget about you know playing games on it. Just writing code for it, you had to sit down and write better software than what DEC already had for you. And so as these individual institutions compiled these libraries of software and realized that other institutions were going to be in the same boat, they started forming user societies, particularly DECAS, the Digital Equipment Corporation User Society, so that they could network together and trade software. So they had a newsletter and they would hold conferences where people would report on the cool things they're doing on the computer. And so software spread. It was uh, an, an open source movement, essentially. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I mean, everything was basically open source back then because software hadn't been commercialized, but it was like a modern open source movement where you see a need for programs on a computer and then you, you collaborate and you share and, and they spread. And so space war was featured at Decus and people were always looking for programs. And so they would get the newsletter. They would see the programs. They would see space war. Anyone who wanted a, copy was encouraged to contact Steve Russell. Uh, and then after Steve Russell left, presumably successors at MIT. Um, and also the people that played it brought it with them as well, because there was no intent to commercialize this by anybody uh, that worked on it. Now, they weren't just altruistic hippies or something like that. They realized that trying to sell a program for a $120,000 computer was not really going to net them a lot of sales. Mm -hmm. uh, and the value of software, quite frankly, as a distinct feature from hardware, hadn't even really been established yet. Software was still largely something that was a throw-in. Either the company provided the software as part of their service to you, which is what IBM did, they had a software catalog, but it was just, I'd like this, this, and this, and they just threw it in as part of the contract. Or you had a situation like DEC where it's like, we don't care about software, go write your own. So 
the value of software had not been established. And even if there had been a value uh, equation for software, there were like 50 PDP-1 computers and not all of them had a display. So there was no market for that. So it wasn't altruistic, but they, they gave it away because they couldn't make any money on it, even if they wanted to. And so it was brought by MIT students to other places. And, and that was really even more important than it appearing in the catalog, because it's one thing to be going through a list of programs and being like, there's this thing, space war, and it's spaceships. And it's like, okay, maybe. I mean, that sounds kind of cool. It's another thing entirely to be like, guys, I was at MIT and mm-hmm. I played this amazing game called Space War. And you've got to try this. And here's the tape. Let's load it up right now. Let's go. And so a lot of the bigger centers, most notably Stanford, were by direct transmission because Steve Russell ends up, well, first he spends uh, six months on active duty because uh, he's uh, he loses his draft deferment and uh, he has to go up. Uh, he goes up in the reserves. He doesn't see combat or anything, but uh, he spends six months in the military, comes back to Harvard to discover that it's under new management, the Litauer Laboratory. Not so happy with the new management. At the same time, his buddy John McCarthy, who had hired him at MIT and founded the AI lab, uh, gets pissed at MIT and accepts a professorship at Stanford. And so goes across the company, uh, across the country, and founds a new AI lab, the Stanford, well, it starts as the Stanford Artificial Intelligence Project and then becomes the Stanford Artificial Intelligence Laboratory or SAIL, which still exists. So that today. it gets a nice acronym. Exactly. <laughs> and. Steve Russell follows him out there, and he brings Space War with him. And Stanford is really kind of the more important nexus for why we still care about Space War today. And I I think Stephen Levy in his book, Hackers, even though he gets some of the details wrong, one thing that he gets very right is that the MIT hacker community was a very insular community. It was by hackers for hackers. Whereas in California and in the Bay Area by Stanford, you had this counterculture movement happening at the same time as this computer hacking stuff's going on. And you have this idea of empowering the individual and breaking the individual free from the constraints society has placed upon them as a big part of the counterculture movement. And there's this idea in certain aspects of the movement. There are other aspects of the movement that are like, let's burn down all technology and and go live on a farm. But there are other aspects of the counterculture movement that are like, we are freeing the human consciousness. And we can do that a lot of ways. We can take a lot of LSD. That frees the human consciousness. But we can also empower them using this technology. We can empower an individual to have more control over their lives by teaching them how to use this technology. And so there was an intersection a little bit between technology and bringing technology to ordinary people. And this is what inspired Stuart Brand in particular, who was the founder of the Whole Earth Catalog. He believed in the commune movement, which was very much about becoming self-sufficient, doing things yourself. And he saw in the hacker movement something very similar. First, he would observe people playing games like Space War and see that almost Zen-like or trance-like state 
that you get into when you're really focusing on playing a game. I mean, you you know what I'm talking about, certainly with that. And he saw that as liberating consciously uh, in a similar way to, to mind-expanding uh, drugs and that kind of thing. And then he saw this whole hacker thing, the way they were building this stuff themselves without any help from, from the man or from the big government. And he saw, I think, parallels to, to the commune movement and the do-it-yourself mentality there uh, with, with the hacker culture. So he was really interested in hacker culture. He really thought computer use could be mind expanding and he wanted to let people know about this. And so that's why he went, uh, as part of, of Rolling Stone to the Stanford AI lab and said, your game's amazing. I would like to host a tournament and then document this in Rolling Stone, which and Rolling Stone at this time, I mean, it's it's the hippest of the hip in the in the early 1970s, right on on the cutting edge of culture. And so that's what they did. And uh, one of the students there, uh, Ralph Gorin, who is far more better known for creating what was probably the first spell checking software ever uh, at sale, uh, also created his own modification of Space War where you could have multiple people playing at once, up to five people. And instead of one hit kills, you could have uh, damage. If you hit certain parts of the ship, it would just do damage instead of blowing it up. And so they did a massive tournament with this multiplayer space war, uh, which appeared in Rolling Stone, and that captured some public imagination. And just the fact that the Stanford AI Lab community was a little more open. I mean, it's not like every random person off the street was coming into the laboratory, but it was a little less insular of a community than the MIT community. So you did have other people learning about it, people like Nolan Bushnell, who was able to see the game because he was in a Go club with a member of the AI lab and uh, named Jim Stein. And one day Jim Stein was like, there's this really cool game over at the AI lab. I think you'd like it. Let's go play. And so they did. And he was just blown away by it. And I know we're talking Stanford and, and not the University of Utah, as, as Nolan usually does. That is a whole nother topic that there is absolutely <laughs> no time to get into uh, today. But You have uh, a blog post about it, I, I do have a blog post if you're interested. <laughs> but But let's just say that... Nolan, 99.9% saw it for the first time at Stanford, not at Utah, for a variety of very good reasons that I don't have time to cover. So we get Nolan seeing it at Stanford. We get Bill Pitts seeing it at Stanford, who uh, created also a coin-operated version of Space War called The Galaxy Game that was never mass-produced, but it was in the it was at Stanford people saw it there uh Eugene Jarvis is one of the people who saw the galaxy game Ed Log is one of the people who saw the galaxy game so now you're making connections between not just Atari and the foundation of this entire coin operated game industry but you're seeing the beginnings of where asteroids came from you're seeing the beginning of where defender came from and you really cannot overstate the influence, even though it was not as widely played as, say, Adventure was or Pong was. Even though it was a, it's it's kind of like it's kind of like what what uh, 
Lou Reed always said about the Velvet Underground, you know, mm-hmm. uh, how like I forget the number, but how like only five people, you know, listened to it. But but every one of them started a band, you know, it's yeah. all it's, the right people <laughs> saw Space War and played exactly. Space War. And yeah, so and you, I think, you know, just to, you know, I don't know, maybe wrap this up uh, mm-hmm. here because I I think what's important to note about Space War is that um a lot of times I think we get fixated on on firsts and those firsts tend to not actually mean anything other than they were the first. Um, mm-hmm. But in Space War's case, uh, it did pioneer a lot of things. It did happen to be first in a lot of uh, aspects. Um, but more importantly, uh, it, its influence is extremely clear. It's not, you know, the first quote unquote video game by mm-hmm. by. Uh, decades i guess but but it is uh i would say the first that that did anything to influence later video games that's absolutely correct Uh, because you have earlier experiments earlier primitive stuff going on even a couple of things that are in real time but they were they were built on one computer or they were built in one location they were used for some kind of demo maybe just once maybe just twice and then they were dismantled because this was researchers and academics. These were people that were doing very serious work and they could see the value in some of these demonstration programs to get the public interested in what they were doing, but they they didn't see a point in it beyond that. Mm-hmm. And in their day, computers were even more expensive and there were even fewer of them. And so there was even less justification for doing it. You needed that next generation coming up that were students that weren't drawn to it just because they were trying to uh, solve world peace or something that were just okay with being like a computer is a fun toy. It's okay to just use it as a toy. And so that's why you get something that is longer lasting because they didn't just build it for one demonstration and then we're like, and now we're scrapping it and now let's go back to our real work boys. They were like, we've made this and here's a copy for you. Here's a copy for you. Here's a copy for you. And then, and then they go off into their careers. And like I said, they're like, I played this amazing game and you've got to play it too. And so then it spreads to other computer labs. And then those people, you know, like with Nolan Bushnell, Jim Stein's like, there's this really cool game and you should see it. And so then it gets to even a third step removed, which are people that aren't even really working with computers for a living. Nolan Bushnell's an engineer, but he's not working with computers. And then you finally get an entrepreneur or two that's like, okay, this is fun. The technology has finally come down in price some. Let's let's make this something commercial that that people can play. And Space War is the first one that takes that impulse all the way to that conclusion, which is, as you say, why I think it is truly, truly influential. You can you can look at it and say, well, it it only inspired a couple of people, but it's I mean, when those couple of people are Nolan Bushnell, Ed Log, yeah. and Eugene Jarvis, <laughs> yeah, uh, that, that's a that's... that's a heck of a butterfly <laughs> wing flap. Right <laughs> Alex has been great. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, where can people find you and your work on the internet? Absolutely. So uh, I I do have my book, uh, as I mentioned the last time I was here as well. They Create Worlds, uh, the story of the people and company that shaped the video game industry, volume one. 
Uh, that is available from the publisher CRC Press, uh, from Amazon and other major retailers. I won't give my huge spiel on price again, but I will just say I know it's expensive. I know it's not for everybody, uh, but it is comprehensive and it it does cover some stuff that I think has never been covered before in published form. So well, then we'll give our spiel again, which is that if you care about this stuff, it's very much worth the price and you should buy it. Well, thank you. Uh, I have also, as I said, this is uh, more recent. I wasn't doing this the last time I was here. I have started annotating uh, the book a little bit, going a little more in-depth. Sometimes it's going a little more in-depth on a topic. Sometimes it's explaining the historiography of how I figured out certain things and if there were multiple stories about something, why I trust this story over the other. Uh, I do those uh, every Wednesday. I call them Worldly Wednesdays because... I'm that kind of marketer, I guess. And uh, um, oh, you mean you mean like how everything we do is the video game history blank? Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, so um, I, I haven't done one the past couple of weeks, but there should still be one again this week. I, it's generally every week, though. I take time off sometimes. Uh, that can be found at my blog, uh, which is actually called uh, videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Uh, though the blog itself is also titled They Create Worlds because I'm definitely that kind of marketer. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, I've, I've still got the podcast going. Uh, also, They Create Worlds with my co-host Jeffrey Dom. Uh, we do that twice a month uh, on the 1st and the 15th. Uh, GMT, so it, uh, if you're in the U.S., it usually comes out late in the evening on the 30th slash 31st and the 14th instead. Uh, and... Uh, that's, uh, it's hosted at, at Podbean, uh, tcwpodcast.podbean.com. Uh, but it's also on iTunes and Spotify and all the other major ones. All of these links will of course be in the show notes. Uh, finally, one thing I do want to highlight that I didn't highlight before is that the, uh, the video game pioneers archive is an ongoing, uh, project by the Smithsonian. Uh, they're not able to really throw a lot of money at it. So it's it's a very intermittent project. We we try to do three or four or five of these interviews a year. Uh, last year, obviously, we didn't. Uh, we were still able to do one. Uh, we were very fortunate to do a 12-hour Zoom interview with Ken and Roberta Williams, with Roberta. Uh, she she came on board for that as one well. One session? 12 hours? It, it was over two sessions. Okay. 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 Oh my God. <laughs> But uh, the raw material was 12 hours. Uh, the transcripts are not available yet. I don't know what that'll cut down to, but... Uh, Let's be clear. This is a big deal. Like, uh, Roberta doesn't talk. Yes. <laughs> yes. And and we got her for, for like 12 hours. So that was wow. uh, fantastic. Uh, uh, it's an ongoing project. Uh, you can learn a little more about it uh, f at the Smithsonian's website. Um, I don't have the URLs off the top of my head, but those will be in the show notes. I, I pass those along. Uh, also some of the first transcripts, uh, are now available. Uh, they were posted in May of last year. It's, uh, not all of them yet, but it's, uh, the, the first three sets of interviews. So it's all the space war interviews that we talked about, which are, uh, again, interviews with eight individuals, everyone who was still alive. Uh, Alan Kotak had passed away of cancer, uh, back in the, in the aughts, but Everyone else uh, took part. Uh, we also have interviews with Nolan Bushnell, Ted Dabney, and Al Alcorn. Not done together. That would be fascinating if anyone <laughs> had ever gotten the three of them in the same room. But they'd also probably all three not be alive anymore if that happened. So <laughs> probably for the best. Uh, Ted Dabney, uh, it's actually very poignant. Um, we learned that he was 
dying of of cancer when when Lenny Herman, who who did the book Phoenix and who's close with Ted, posted that publicly, I I immediately uh, emailed Chris Weaver and and said, you know, Ted Dabney's dying. If if we're going to do this, we have to do it right now. And uh, I actually I I'm proud of this, so I'm going to brag on myself a little bit. I I served as the go between. I'm not usually the guy scheduling the interviews. But I served as the go-between because I know Lenny, and and so I got Ted's email from him and communicated with Ted, and then we had to figure out where to do it because he lives in the mountains of California. Uh, he he couldn't come to the Computer History Museum with his age and health, uh, which was like a three-hour drive away. So I, I worked with him and with uh, the pastor of his church because the church was a big enough space we could do this. And so we got all those details arranged. Uh, I I was not on site. But we we interviewed him in March of 2018. He passed away in May 2018, and he wow. told uh, he told Lenny uh, after it happened. He called up Lenny Herman and was just so excited because he he'd done some interviews before. I mean, the Computer History Museum did an oral history with him, but these interviews are meant to also be incredibly high production quality. I think they're even shooting in 8K, if I remember correctly, not even 4K. And so it's it's a professional film production crew uh, of about uh, six people that does this. And Ted Dabney was just so floored. He called Lenny and said, you know, nine people from the Smithsonian came all the way out to the middle of California just to talk to me. And and I like to think that that was, uh, you know, a little bright spot for him in the midst of of, of knowing he was was terminally ill. So. Uh, it's it's really important work I think we're doing. It's meaningful work, and you can see some of the first fruits of that work uh, on the Smithsonian website as well. And and the show notes will provide the link uh, to that. So, um, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Great. Um, well, gosh, thank you again. This was awesome. Oh, and thanks for having me again. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Video Game History Hour brought to you by the Video Game History Foundation. If you have questions or comments for the show, you can find us on Twitter at Game History Hour or email us at podcast at gamehistory.org. Did you know that the Video Game History Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit and that all of your contributions are tax deductible? You can support this podcast and all of our other work on Patreon or at gamehistory.org slash donate. This episode of the Video Game History Hour was produced by Robin Kunamune and edited by Michael Carroll. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.